Luffalo Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So I have been in some heated debates on Twitter today and last night. And I thought I would share these debates with you because I think it's a great instructional, it's a great instructional tool in how to better understand the banking system. And that's what we have to do if we want to truly predict what's going to happen with inflation, with deflation, with recessions, and what might uh, happen as a result of the Fed decreasing the size of their balance sheet, increasing the size of the balance sheet, et cetera. So, and I, I can't, and I've actually got great news. Because after thinking through these debates that I had, I had this epiphany on why it's so difficult for these two groups of people to really talk to one another and make progress on understanding the overall system. So let's get into, uh, let's go right over to Twitter. And I want to start by, well, I did a three-hour spaces yesterday, and you can find that on my Twitter feed and I, I was contemplating actually going to the spaces and, and playing parts of it for you, uh, parts of the debate. I'm not going to do that. And the reason I'm not going to do that is because although this is public and the people that were going up there and speaking and, uh, you know, the people that had a, an opposing view, uh, although they were doing this willingly, I don't want to come here on YouTube on a completely different platform where I've got a pretty big following and kind of throw them under the bus. That That is not what my intention is here at all, at all. My intention is to get you to think about this. And my intention is to have everyone uh, increase their understanding of how the global monetary system actually works. So the epiphany that I had in, in just kind of bear with me on this one is there's two groups of people, and, and both groups have people within those groups that are incredibly intelligent. And uh, I, I, this is basically what I'm saying in this tweet. You've got one group that believes that banks lend money, all right? And the other group believes that banks create money. Now, this is not a distinction without a difference. This is the whole entire problem. The whole entire problem. Why is this a big deal? Let's just say for a moment that a bank lends money, okay? Well, what that means is it's the equivalent of me lending, let's say, uh, pens. I've got a couple of pens here in my, my desk. So if I have one pen, then I can lend out one pen. Let's say Josh needs one. But the thing is, if I have two pens, now I can go ahead and lend out two pens. I, I can lend out more because I have more to lend. See, so that would be what this camp believes. And in this camp, I would put 99% of all human beings, even the experts. That's the camp they fall into. Now, the other camp believes that even if I don't start with any pens, I can go ahead and lend one because I create them. And then my balance sheet is simply going to be that pen that I created. That's the liability. And then the asset is going to be the loan that I just created. That's the way it works. So you see why that is such a huge, huge difference. Because let's just extrapolate this further. If the banks don't need money to lend, if they create their own money, if they create money instead of lending it, this means that bank reserves, although they might have to settle at some point in time, it means they, they never have to settle. They don't need those things in order to continue to create loans. Now, I'm sure there's regulatory environment. Uh, you know, stuff and whatnot. But the, the bottom line is 
from a mechanical standpoint, they don't need them. And the thought experiment that I always use is if there was one bank, they, they wouldn't even need assets. They could just literally create as many loans as they wanted to, as much money as they wanted to. And the Fed is a good example of that. Why is that, George? Because they never have to transfer that commercial liability to someone else, you see? So when I got into this discussion, this debate with uh, a, a person in here that I'm I'm not going to mention their name, if you guys want to listen to the whole thing, you can go to my Twitter feed and listen to the replay. I think uh, my team is going to put the whole entire thing up on the podcast later on tonight. But the the the, the main debate that I had was with someone that was trying to get me or had a view that bank reserves are the be-all end-all. The be-all end-all. So if bank reserves go up, well, that means liquidity goes up. The banks basically can do things with $3 trillion in reserves that they just flat out cannot do with $2.5 trillion. And I kept giving examples and trying to communicate that message or try to communicate my view in a different way each time for probably 15 minutes straight. And the net result of that was this guy thought I was absolutely crazy, out of my mind, to the point where he literally said that my views were not just wrong, but they were dangerous. I'm not making that up. That that my views were dangerous. And I would say, okay, well, how would the bank settle prior to QE when there was no reserves? There's no answer, right? What he kept going back to is all these correlations. Well, there's a correlation between the stock market and the bank reserves in, let's say, 2020 to uh, 2023. There's also a correlation, let's say, between 2008 and 2014. Therefore, this has to give the banks the ability to lend more. And then I would point out something like I've pointed out on this channel probably many, many times that the reserves from 2014 to 2019 went down. And not just down. They went down by almost 50%. But what did the stock market do? It went up by, I don't know the chart in front of me, but well, actually, I think I do. During that time, the stock market, and this is the- George, you need to reshare your screen. Ah, okay. Well, let's just go back to Twitter because I'll get the numbers for you guys. And that uh, is sufficient here. Between 2014, uh, the S&P, let's just make sure that is nominal- the S&P in uh, 2014, roughly 1,800. And then in 2019, it finished around, or it was around, let's just say, 3,100. So we had a massive, massive increase in the S&P 500, while at the same time, the amount of bank reserves actually went down and, and down by 50%. You see, so there's times when, yes, there's a correlation, but there's times when there's not. And therefore, what we have to do is look at the mechanics behind what's going on. So another example that uh, actually I'll switch up the screen share because I think this is relevant. And why this is so important, guys, when you're trying to think through this stuff on your own is it is, I'm not saying that correlations never matter. That that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that in order for a correlation to matter, in my opinion, the mechanics have to make sense, right? And I use the example on the live stream last night or this tw- uh, spaces debate of a Indian rain dance. Okay. If you can draw, let's say an 80% correlation between it raining and some guy dancing, you have to take the next step and say, okay, well, let me understand what causes rain or let me understand how rain works, <laughs> how the clouds work. Let me understand all this stuff. And then I can determine how much weight 
I should put into that correlation. Let me give you an example. I thought this was, uh, and I have actually got Ali doing a uh, scatter plot on this right now to actually see the overall correlation. But let's look at uh, this chart of the S&P 500. Yes. And uh, this is a nominal chart that goes all the way back to, uh, call it 1930. Okay, cool. Now, let's also look at a chart of global average temperature change. And this goes back to 1850. <laughs> but let's just look at it from, let's say, 1925 to today. So from right here all the way up to right there. And let's go back and look at the chart of the S&P 500. How much of a correlation, and with the exception of this time frame right here, let's call it early 2000s, the correlation is almost spot on. So say there's an 85% correlation here between the S&P 500 and global average temperature change. Am I supposed to believe that the S&P 500 is causing global warming? Now, there's a very strong correlation, but no. What we've got to do is say, okay, that's an interesting hypothesis. Now, let's go ahead and look at the science. Now, let's go ahead and look at the plumbing. Let's look at the mechanics to determine how much weight <laughs> we should be putting into this correlation. Okay, so let's go back to Twitter. And um, the, the main takeaway from this first part is if you believe that uh, the system really doesn't need that much reserves based on my videos or Snyder, or you know, just looking at the data, going back prior to QE when there were basically no reserves in the system whatsoever. And let's say you're trying to explain that to a friend, a loved one, your friend and family member, Fred, as an example. What you've, and, and this is the problem that I've had, because to me, it just seems so simple. It, it seems so obvious, but that's because I believe that the banks create money. When I look at the evidence, that's the conclusion I come to. I do not come to the conclusion that banks lend money, right? So when I'm sitting here trying to communicate, to this group of people, they, I might as well be speaking a different language. And it's the same thing with this group. And I, I want to uh, actually uh, give this person that I, I won't name uh, the benefit of the doubt because I kept saying, well, what can banks do with reserves or a hundred billion in reserves that they can't do with 90? You know, wh what can the system do with 3 trillion that they can't do at 2.5. I kept saying, well, what is, have you ever heard of JP Morgan not issuing a loan because they didn't have enough bank reserves? You know, and I kept saying, and, and then prior to 2008, how did they settle if there was no reserves back then? Or how did they create loans? I mean, that's another chart that I put out, another couple charts that I put out on Twitter, which if you guys are trying to have these discussions amongst yourselves or with friend and family members, uh, you might find very interesting. Uh, to say the least. And that is when you pull up a chart of the actual bank reserves and you compare that to a chart of overall bank credit. I'm looking for that right now. Let's go to that here on my computer. I think you guys will really find this fascinating. So if we look at bank credit, you can see the increase and um, you can see it go up, 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 up here and then kind of flatten out and then it goes up again. Okay, great. Well, let's compare this to that chart of bank reserves. So that's the bank reserves. Notice no increase here, no increase. It's, it's basically flat all the way up until 2008, and then it goes much higher. And if we compare that again to bank credit, you can see that 
the bank credit was going up. And also too, I'd like to point out that if you look at this in terms of percentage, the bank credit that was issued, i.e. loans, went up by a much higher percentage with almost no reserves in the system compared to when we had quote unquote ample reserves. So just looking at this chart, I don't think there's any way that you could argue that that bank lending is somehow predicated upon reserves when they were lending more when they had no reserves whatsoever. So I was trying to, to go down this path and I was just getting absolutely nowhere with this person that, that's an expert, that, that's an industry professional. And so what I was saying is, please help me understand how a bank can lend more if they have $100 billion in reserves compared to 90. And he almost didn't want to answer the question, why? Because he thought it was so ridiculous. And to give him the benefit of the doubt, I think this is why he accused me of, of, of being dangerous. Because in his mind, if I can't even understand how a bank can lend more money, if they have more money, then I'm not even worth talking to. And by the way, if I'm that stupid and I have a huge following on social media, then that is dangerous because I'm, I'm someone that can't even understand the concept of having two pens, being able to lend more pens than if I only have one pen. Why does he have that view? Because his entire framework is built around what pretty much everyone believes. And that's that banks lend money. Therefore, if they have more money, then they can lend more money. And it's not that people, and I disagree with that view, obviously, but it's not that people that have that view are stupid or anything. No, 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 no. No, a lot of these people are incredibly intelligent. It's just that that seems like such a basic concept that they don't even look into it any further. They just assume that it has to be true, right? It's, it's like me going and trying to prove or disprove uh, or disprove, I should say, that two plus two doesn't equal four. Well, why, why would I even waste my time on that? It, it's, we learned this in first grade. Why, why am I going back and allocating resources to trying to, to disprove this? So you can totally understand his position, where if you believe that, that the banks lend money, and, and that's not even debatable, then if someone is sitting there saying, well, how can banks lend more if they have more? then this is a person that I just absolutely cannot take serious. And, and that's his position. And that's why we kept, in my opinion, why we kept going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth here, because we never got down to the core of the disagreement. We were just talking past one another, right? And I would keep telling him to you know, hey, ask, how do these banks settle? You know, how are they doing this? How are they even creating loans to begin with? And he just kept going around and not even answering the question. Because I think in his mind, this was such a stupid question to ask to begin with that it didn't even warrant an answer. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options, Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with macroeconomics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com 
forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. So what I want to encourage you to do is um, I would assume most of you guys from watching my videos believe that banks create money. I think you'd probably fall into that camp. So I'm sure you've experienced the same level of frustration in trying to open up the eyes of the people around you. And again, why is this important? You know, why does it even matter at the end of the day? Because we as a society and the market participants that are out there buying stocks, the market participants that are out there uh, buying or selling treasuries, buying or selling gold, Bitcoin, oil, commodities, whatever it is, if they believe that the Federal Reserve increasing the amount of bank reserves gives the bank's ability to lend more, they're going to be taking action based on those assumptions, right? But if mechanically those assumptions are incorrect, that gives you a huge edge. It's like having a sixth sense where most people would say, oh my gosh, you know, we're, gonna, we're running into some very dangerous territory here because all of the money is flowing out of the reverse repo. And therefore, you know, once that money is gone, then where is the, where are the banks going to get the liquidity to go ahead and buy more treasures or whatever it is? Or, oh my gosh, Janet Yellen is filling up the TGA. This is going to suck up all the liquidity from the banking system. And they're going to be able to create fewer loans. Therefore, if they create fewer loans, then we're, we're absolutely going to have deflation. You see, that may or may not be true. We may have deflation, but you know damn well that it wasn't a result of the Fed taking the bank reserves down from, or not the Fed, but Janet Yellen taking the bank reserves from, call it 3.5 trillion down to 3 trillion. You know that if we have that deflation, if bank lending goes down, that was a result, not, not of the reserves going up and down, but as a result of perceived risk, perceived risk. So that's why these discussions are so vitally important. And that's really what it boils down to. There's just two camps out there. And one camp believes that banks lend money. The other, like I said, believes that banks create money. And until these two groups get on the same page, we're just, we're chasing our tails here. We're never, ever, ever going to make any progress because we're speaking a completely different language. So now let's go back to Twitter here. And I want to uh, just briefly go down this Twitter thread from some people that kind of chimed in uh, based on this tweet. Number one, monetary wonk. Number two, this person, Kim Driver. Now, um, I, I didn't agree with everything that these guys were saying, but they have some really great insights that I think would be definitely worth your time uh, if you're on Twitter here. And so we're talking about how banks don't need deposits to create loans. Uh, those are liabilities, but they have to fund loans. So what Monetary Wonk is saying is basically settlement, that they don't need reserves to create the loan, but they need reserves to actually settle the loan because they transfer that asset to another, or excuse me, that liability to another bank. They've got to follow that up with an asset. And that's where I go back to, okay, well, if that's the case, then what were they doing prior to 2008? Because there were effectively zero reserves. And that's where uh, Kim comes in, who I think was or is still a banker, 
that controls the uh, sounds like it can he controls the reserves or the, or the settlement process with the bank that he either owns or the bank that he operates. And so he chimes in and says that, yes, uh, you know, interbank settlement, they're using reserves. But then we get down into the nitty gritty. And I say, okay, well, if we're having to settle this transaction, why wouldn't we just settle by the receiving bank giving the sending bank credit? It's the exact same thing. That's the offsetting liability, or excuse me, that's the offsetting asset. You don't need a reserve for that. You can just extend that bank credit. And then what if they have accounts with one another? If I'm sending you a liability, if I'm also reducing a different liability in your balance sheet, then we've settled. Everything nets out. And so then uh, Kim chimes in and says it needs to be all automated. You've got seconds to settle. Um, Let's see. And then I'm not sure if it's in this comment or another one, but he, uh, or here he says, that's certainly possible. He says, I've done it. It could also just issue an IOU to the second bank, which is exactly what I was just talking about. Uh, But as you say, the volumes transacted make this very impractical. Now, I would say, uh, so that's where I would slightly disagree. And uh, because I would go back to prior to 2008 and say, okay, well, there was a reason why they were never settling on the Fed's balance sheet. That's because there was some disadvantage to it. Therefore, that disadvantage probably still exists. And so if a bank is interacting with another bank, it's going, although there might be slightly more risk, when you look at the trade-offs, the cost and benefits, it's still easier to settle on between banks on their balance sheet instead of bringing in the Fed. And the proof of that is because if that wasn't true prior to QE, there would have been a lot more reserves in the system to begin with. So I know that's getting super uh, you know, technical and in the weeds and whatnot, but why this is such practical information if you sit down and think about it, is because it'll help you make much, much, much better decisions in determining the probabilities of us having inflation, deflation, uh, interest rates go up or down at the long end of the curve, or maybe even at the front end of the curve, by stocks going up or down, by uh, the uh, interest rate for treasuries, you know, the demand supply dynamics, all of these things that are such important questions when that you have to answer when you're trying to figure out the price of what an asset will do, like gold or Bitcoin or silver or real estate for that matter. You see, if you're able to start by answering those questions, you're going to have a huge edge that will allow you to better assess the probabilities if the Fed is doing X, Y, or Z. That's why I pound the table on this stuff to till, till the cows come home. <laughs> and hopefully you can appreciate that. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism. See you in the next video.